Hi, this is Dr. Sean Handorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert, and this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable, and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast and a really, really great conversation and story that I get to share with you today. I sat down with Amy Braden. Amy is a listener of the Motivation Made Easy podcast who I asked if she would be interested in sharing her story and she so graciously said she would be. Um, And as you can tell by the title, this episode is about Amy's journey really after doing a lot of work to heal from an eating disorder to, you know, become an intuitive eater to really build trust with herself and her body after, you know, she'll go into some of the reasons why that distrust built up. And um, more recently in her life, pursuing bariatric surgery, also known as weight loss surgery. And I asked her to come on because I know from working with clients one-on-one that her experience is really not that uncommon. It's hard to find communities or spaces where she can feel kind of like that sense of acceptance and belonging. And I mean, I will say Amy's been able to self-advocate and that's one of the, the themes of this story is really she's such a great example of what self-advocacy looks like in medical settings, mental health settings. And, you know, it's unfortunate that she had to do all that work, but it's sort of a reality of our systems is a lot of times we do have to really self-advocate. And so I think it's just a great example of that. It's also, you know, along with that kind of how challenging it can be to get appropriate treatment for whether it's binge eating disorder or any eating disorder or disordered eating, it's just so easily missed. And I mean, because it's really so normalized. So um, I really think that this conversation, the reason I think it's so cool and I'm so jazzed about it is because I don't actually think it's about weight loss surgery or bariatric surgery per se. Although I think someone, if you are, pursuing that or have pursued that or want to pursue that, I think you'll find this conversation really valuable. 
But even if you have no desire to pursue that, um, I think you'll also find it really valuable because I think what you'll see in this conversation is really that another example of the fact that there's no one answer to how to think about yourself eating your weight and how quickly our brains, because of how our brains are designed, they're so quick to jump to uh, maybe judgments or just feeling like we know the answer. And, um, and Amy talks about how in some health at every size or intuitive eating podcasts, she really had to stop listening because they were really using a lot of derogatory language about bariatric surgery and weight loss surgery. And while she was, I think, very gracious and understanding about that. And I mean, I think, you know, there's perhaps there is a role for that, right? And it can make people feel really judged and feel like, where do I, where do I belong? And so I just, uh, I really enjoyed getting to know Amy and her story. Um, and I, I think this, the message for me from this conversation and really the, the message I hope people take from this is how discussions about weight and weight loss and, um, intuitive eating and, and self-trust, like I think, as we always say, they are really nuanced things and they are really complex and they're really individual, but it doesn't have to be so polarized. Like if you are an intuitive eater, you can never talk about weight or never talk about weight loss. Um, and, and you, we have to be really cautious, right? Because if, and if you're listening to this and you're like, I'm in early on the intuitive eating journey. And I think at this point in my journey, listening to this, will throw me off track and it'll make me too weight loss focused and it'll make me too diet mentality, then trust that intuition. Um, but if you are like, you know, I think it'll make me uncomfortable. It may make me tempted to fall back into old mindsets, but I think I can handle it. Like you can also trust that too. And I think that that's the thing that's we can become too avoidant of having difficult conversations or learning about topics that we worry might trigger us to unhelpful mindsets. And, you know, unfortunately, discussions about weight and weight loss are not going away. And uh, my opinion is that this discussion is a really, I think, one that reminds you that you can trust yourself, that you have autonomy, you have freedom of choice with what and how to move forward with your body, your health care, your relationship with food. And there really is not. I feel very strongly that um, there's no one path. There's no one way to think about these complex topics. And, you know, being brave enough to kind of own your individual story and share that with the world is, is one gift that Amy gives us today. So, We cover a lot in this. Um, I'll let us dive in here so we don't make it too, too long, but she talks a lot about themes that really helped her. Um, And so, like I said, I think lots lots of you will really benefit from this, and I can't wait to hear what you think. So settle in and let's get started. Remember the old diet advice, like when the urge to eat strikes, just take a walk or have a glass of water. Usually, you're just thirsty, not hungry. If you're anything like me, these suggestions make you want to punch the magazine or the person who said it in the face. 
So many suggestions to just stop emotional eating are based in diet culture. They're based in the notion that you know what to do, just do it. And I'm here to tell you that changing behavior is hard. We as humans are wired for comfort and disrupting a pattern of emotional eating is challenging. And at the same time, you absolutely can do it and you can learn to prefer it. However, to get started with disrupting this pattern, we need to feel understood. We need to then take small, consistent actions in the direction of our goals. So we're going to leave these super patronizing suggestions at home and get some actual suggestions for simple, fun things to do when the urge to eat strikes when you know you are not hungry. So for some actual suggestions for this, I have a new free actionable guide. This is a one-page PDF you can pull up at any time with 23 things to do instead of eating, complete with links to videos, fun, inspiring songs, and many different ideas to disrupt the pattern and take a small step towards empowerment and towards that confident person that you deserve to be. So grab the guide absolutely free at drhondorp.com forward slash guide. That's D-R-H-O-N-D-O-R-P forward slash guide to start ditching the shoulds and regaining confidence in yourself today. All right. So welcome back to the Motivation Made Easy podcast. I am very, I always say I'm very excited about my guests, but I'm very, very excited about our guest today um, for a number of reasons. Um, We have Amy Braden here, who's going to share her personal journey that I think is a unique one. And I also know she's very much not alone in this type of journey, the kind of worlds that Amy's navigating. So, um, so yeah, Amy's going to share more about herself, but essentially Amy is a listener of the podcast, which is always exciting for me to meet. I think you had, I think I had emailed you first and then you shared a little bit of your story and that's how we got to know each other. But, um, Amy's a 52 year old woman living in Sacramento, California, And um, we're going to talk today about kind of the intersections of the worlds of health at every size and intuitive eating journey, which Amy's been on for a number of years. And we're going to talk about that and the decision to pursue weight loss surgery, bariatric surgery. So this is an area that um, I think we need more discussion around. And uh, so that's what we're going to do here today. So welcome, Amy. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate it. And I really appreciate the opportunity. Of course. So I gave a little bit of background about you, but I'd love to just back up and have you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself. Where were you born and raised? Some about what was growing up like for you. Okay. Um, I was born in 1970 in Rock Island, Illinois, a little Midwestern town. And that's really only important because it was the seventies. First of all, it was also the Midwest, which at least in my experience of that time, was very stereotypically um, an environment that definitely set the the foundation for my food issues, I would say, over the course of my life. There were everyone that I knew loved with food. Their parents loved with food. My family particularly loved with food and used food to cope with difficult emotions, to avoid emotions, to express emotions. 
my mother actually did it as a living. She was a food service person. And um, so it was just this long line of, of being about food. We also lived in an area that was kind of the central location for corn and soybean production. So in the early 70s, when the corn syrup and fillers and all of that thing started happening in both fast food and, and um, mass processed foods, it was celebrated because it was jobs and it was a help, a boost to our economy. So my household, and not all of my friends were like this, but my household was one where there was every sugary cereal you could think of, baked desserts, chips, you could, we drank soda like it was water. My mom's way of when little kids were coming was she would get the fruit flavored sodas, like somehow that was more kid friendly than the Pepsi or Coke. And yeah, so absolutely. it was just red pop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so there were no restrictions. We could do what we could have, whatever we wanted, which, um, you know, in some ways I guess was good in that it didn't set me up for restriction, but it also didn't teach any boundaries at all. Mm-hmm. And so I also learned when I was later in life that my mom said, when I was born, her doctor told her specifically and all of her friends that had babies at the time, not to breastfeed. And at the time there wasn't mass produced formula. So they had her take caro syrup. So corn syrup, mix it with powdered milk and water. And that's what we were fed. And I remember vividly thinking that and thinking, well, I was just destined for food issues. There was, there was no hope, not to mention not getting the colostrum, but still it was just, there, yeah. there was no hope. So yeah, that, it was, it, it was interesting. <laughs> that is so interesting. And, um, I, I had read like some of your notes prior to this and I, you know, I've heard some stories about, you know, the, the differences and, you know, encouragement or non-encouragement to breastfeed, but it's kind of amazing. And, and I think you really bring in this like unique element that sometimes, I mean, we've definitely heard some stories that bring this in, but like this unique element about our food environment and about how we, and I know we're going to actually probably come back to some of those Mm -hmm. things too, but how that matters too. We're not just talking about diet mentality and, and, and that's very important. Like you didn't have that restriction piece, but you're like, I wasn't really set up for, you know, success in these other ways. What was interesting at the time too, is that I do know that a lot of the adult women, particularly in my life were, they'd go on diets and they'd talk about how they were fat, quote unquote, or, but never seemed to make the connection, connections to food, or it was like these two disconnected things that were running parallel to each other, which again, I guess is good that it didn't set me up for restriction, but it is also Mm -hmm. this very interesting thing when you go to become an adult and try to navigate this world yourself. Mm -hmm. And my parents were doing what everybody, what they knew, how they were raised. So it's not like I, I quote, blame them for anything, but it's just this, this environment that I know has shaped not just myself, but my siblings' lives in terms of our relationships with food. Yes. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons I love hearing people's stories and and the podcast, how I think is sort of like thinking about themes and how there's so much divide in the ways we think about health and weight and eating, um, in the world today. And, and people have just like such strong opinions about it. And I just think there's so many factors to that and it's all valid. Mm -hmm. And, um, anyway, Mm -hmm. yeah, I just, I appreciate you sharing that all that aspect of of your yeah. story. Um, and then the other thing in terms, I will share just cause I think it's important to my story is that, mm-hmm. um, part of the body issues 
I, as a kid was very, very active. I played sports. We were outdoors playing all the time. Um, I didn't even think about my body other than being strong and tall. I say, I say tall because I hit five, five at 10, but then never went past that. So at the time I was tall now in the shortest mm-hmm. in my family, but they, um, I had an instance of, um, sexual abuse from a, a family member when I was young and that set up some real dynamics, which, you know, I know is a, not a unique situation at all because I've met too many people like me who've been through this, where it makes you have this new relationship with your body. And then when I started developing early for my age, I started getting attention and I was not ready for that attention at all. It just made me because of what I'd been through. And so I think there was a part of me in my subconscious that made this connection between if my body is larger, I won't get that attention. Therefore, it's an okay thing to have a larger body. And I honestly think it kind of became a body, uh, like an armor, a a body suit to kind of quote, protect me. Mm -hmm. And so there was also this weird relationship going that had nothing to do with food, honestly, and that I had to kind of work through to get to a point where I could have my relationship with my body be just about me. Mm-hmm. and from a place mm-hmm. of safety. And that took a lot of therapy and a lot of years. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I appreciate you sharing that so much because like you said, it's very much, um, you know, quite a common experience. And I always like to give the caveat that like, it's one of my, like, it's not everyone's experience. And of course you, you and everyone knows that too. It's, um, but it's a real thing. Like feeling safe in our bodies is essential. And of mm-hmm. course, if you have an experience of abuse or assault, that can really set you up for having a hard time regaining that sense of autonomy and safety in your body. And food is a, a good way to do that. Like right. it doesn't always serve us long-term, right? But it's like pretty effective. And it's actually, especially if our society was more accepting of diverse bodies, it be like not as big of a deal. Like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And when you use food to numb feelings or feel feelings or anything, it also sets up this very interesting, interesting dynamic. It really is. I mean, I honestly think sometimes some of my, you know, my weight storage, there's feelings in there. And it's interesting as I've been losing weight more recently, some of that's coming up. I think there's this very weird medical metaphysical thing going on. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I want to, I want to hear more about that because I think that, that our bodies just, they hold a lot of wisdom and, mm-hmm. and when, especially when we learn to listen and appreciate versus judge and try to control and shape. So, and when, and when you actually take care of them and nourish them, they'll forgive an awful lot and love mm-hmm. you. It's really impressive. Oh, I love that. I just want to pause for a second. That's just, that's a really nice sound bite there. So, um, so let's talk a little, well, do you, do you feel like we talked, we touched on kind of some background growing up and your relationship with food growing up? Did we touch on, um, some of the key factors that were relevant for you? The only, the only other really thing that was relevant was that I moved from Illinois. My family moved to California, Northern California when I was 14 and it was right at the, you know, the height of puberty when all of this fam- this body stuff was starting to come up and this attention stuff. And then I moved and it was in the eighties where I'm sorry to all of us that survived the eighties, but it was a fairly shallow cultural thing going on. And California, at least to me, felt very um, much more obsessed on 
having smaller sized bodies that fit a certain shape to be acceptable. So I was going into what is already awkward for many people going into high school with people I'd never met before. I mean, we moved in, I moved in the summer before high school started into this culture where I did not fit in. And so it was kind of a miserable <laughs> few years, um, but I managed to graduate early and go off to college. And luckily at college, I found my tribe and I found more peace, but it was good a long time before. But I do know that that um, it definitely set up some of the issues that I had because it just kind of, it, it was like it reinforced some of the negative things or the not true things that I had going in terms of how I was thinking about my body. And it just kind of, well, see, there's the evidence that I was looking for. And so it just, um, and my nature was to rebel against that kind of thing. So I wasn't going to be somebody who was going to restrict and try to meet that body shape. Instead, I was like, well, then love me or not, here I am, you know? Yeah. Um, so, and, and I, I guess I'm, I'm in retrospect, glad I have that part of my personality, but mm -hmm no decisions about my health or my body should have been made with relation to what anybody else cared about. And I'm glad that I finally at 52, finally reached the stage where that is mostly true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How aware were you, like, were you ever talking about your relationship with food, your body, any of these feelings? Like when did you start to, cause you said you've done therapy and you've worked through a lot. When did that awareness, when did you start talking about it openly? Um, I think I would say, huh, I know that through my say, uh, college years, twenties, maybe even like into my late twenties, I wasn't necessarily happy with my body because, you know, I had a, a larger body size that didn't fit what was conceived stereotypical, but I had people that loved me and I, and I had relationships and I had, um, so it wasn't as of concern to me. Mm -hmm. I did, I lived in an environment with family members and other friends that had struggles with their body weight and size. And so I would get caught up in that a little bit but I was not your typical yo-yo dieter. Cause frankly, I think in some level, I still needed that body armor I talked about. And so I wasn't ready to really deal with that. Um, and it wasn't until I was dealing with some other issues in my late twenties that I finally got into therapy and in going through therapy, I kind of could see how I, I knew my relationship with food wasn't necessarily a healthy one because I was using it for things other than nourishment and enjoyment, which is okay. I was using it mm -hmm. to avoid feelings and such, but I also couldn't figure out how to address it. Cause I knew, I just knew instinctively dieting was not the answer. Um, and yeah. so I will say at about that time was when I also became vegetarian and I did not do it for weight or body, but it was interesting to kind of learn a new relationship with food that had nothing to do with the size of my body. Um, I kind of did it for values for animal rights. And, and I felt like I'd had enough meat and potatoes to last me several lifetimes by that stage, having grown up in the Midwest. <laughs> and so I, and I have been vegetarian since then and hope to someday maybe become vegan for health reasons, but for, um, it was just another opportunity to kind of explore food differently as well. Um, and it wasn't until I was in my probably mid thirties when I realized that my relationship with food was getting to a pretty negative place. And I think it was primarily because I had some poorly treated or undertreated depression. And so I was using food to cope with feelings or to try to feel feelings 
much more than I had in the past. And so I knew it wasn't right, but trying to find help. And so this would have been in the um, early 2000s and mid 2000s. And at least in my area, which I think is, you know, it's a pretty big metropolitan area. It's the capital, the most populous state in the nation. It has big medical systems, but I was in an HMO at the time and they did not even identify binge eating disorder, let alone treat it. I had to really advocate and educate my own physician to get a diagnosis of it eventually. And that was only after I changed to a PPO, which thankfully I was blessed enough to have an option. But when I was at the HMO, they put me into a program for just blanket eating disorders. And I will never forget being in a, put in a support group and everyone in the group was either anorexic or bulimic other than I, than me. And I felt like I was their worst nightmare sitting across the table from them. And, and it was the worst feeling. And I felt, I mean, I I lasted, I think two meetings because I just thought I'm spending my entire time being codependent, trying to make them feel like it's okay. You don't have to be threatened by me. So, um, yeah, yeah. So when I got changed over the PPO, I had to do a lot of education and advocacy on what binge eating disorder was and that, yes, I did qualify. And here's, let me show you. I mean, I had to keep logs of my binge activity. It it was a lot of work. And then I had to find a program that actually treated it. And luckily there was an outpatient, intensive outpatient program in our area. And it used intuitive eating as kind of the basis of um, their approach. And I got it. And I will say that, uh, and they also had... um, you know, individual therapy and then group process, group therapy involved. Mm -hmm. And it was a godsend. And I will say that I did not necessarily notice immediate results from it. And that's something I guess I would tell anyone that's seeking out help is that don't, even if while you're in treatment, it doesn't feel like it's clicking or that you're getting it. I, over the years have gone, Oh, now, now I see it's like, you almost wake up one day Mm -hmm. and I've experienced this with therapy a lot where you wake up one day and, and go, Oh, that's what they meant. I now can experience this. Yeah. I mean, I remember, I remember being in meeting with a nutritionist and her explaining to me that the idea was to get to a point where there was no quote, bad food that I didn't need to be afraid of food. And I, I remember insisting to her, but, but Reese's peanut butter cups are my crack. You don't understand. <laughs> and she's like, someday you'll be able to eat a Reese's peanut butter cup and your decision of whether to have one will be whether it sounds like it would be a nice treat or not. And, um, and she was right. It just took a lot of time and a lot of work, you know, and, yeah. and, um, but yeah. I was great. I was grateful to find the program. I really was, but I, my relationship was definitely not healed. I mean, I, I continued to struggle. I continued to binge. I continued to gain weight. Yeah. I want to, I want to pause just for a second to highlight what you said. Cause I think it's so important this, um, first of all, I mean, just to like reflect, like you really had to advocate very hard to even get to an appropriate program like that actually. And it sounds like it was a pretty good program. It was, but like you kind of had to do all the legwork with that, which not everyone, many people don't even know how to do that. And that's hopefully changing, but I would actually say it's not in many circumstances, that actually hasn't changed that much. No. <laughs> um, I actually had my physician thank me for it. And I remember there was an, intu- there was an intuitive eating book that came out maybe five, six years ago, time's been flying with the pandemic, but that was geared towards medical professionals and kind of how to identify people with disordered eating and help them and give them resources. And I bought a copy of it for my doctor and gave it to her. And she was so thankful. And I said, <laughs> 
that people need to know this. And, and luckily mm-hmm. over the years, we've developed a relationship where I could, I can stop her. I mean, I remember once in the middle of an appointment where she brought up weight and me saying, stop, I- I'm sorry. I'm, I'm having a reaction here. And I just need a minute to like talk through what this reaction is about. And she was talking about my weight and we had already had the conversation that I, I was open to talking about health issues. I was not open to talking about weight. I didn't want to be weight. I did. If I was weighed, I didn't want to see the weight. Um, yeah. And then of course, later I shocked her by going, can you give me a referral to a, a bariatric surgery program? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. But it was when I was ready. <laughs> In terms of that assertiveness with your doctor, how like, because you said like, to some extent early on, you're like, screw this dieting thing. Like I know intuitively this is not going to work. So there was some of that, but like, and I'm just curious in terms of like the skill of assertiveness with a provider, that's a hard skill for a lot of people. Has that yeah. something you've worked really hard on? What did that somewhat come naturally to you? What I, I'm just yeah. curious about that. I, I tend, I tend to be, you know, my dear departed mother was very much taught me um, not to really con- be too concerned about what other people thought about me, which it can have a negative extreme. But in this instance, it was rather helpful because while I had a great deal of respect and always have for medical providers or any sort of health providers and their experience and their, um, their, you know, what they've learned over the time in their practice. I also know that they're not infallible and that our mm-hmm. medical system, our medical education system, our um, managed care system, and what even I've heard enough physicians complain about what they ha- are restricted by having to deal with insurance companies and all of that, that I knew that A, it's not infallible. And also that I did my own research and I studied and mm-hmm. I talked to people and went and said, I think this sounds like me. Like I remember reading about binge eating disorder and and saying, this seems like me. Look at all of these things. This seems like me. How do I get help with this? Because clearly this isn't going away. So how do I get help with this? And so Mm -hmm. it just was a matter. And luckily she was receptive to my primary care provider. Now I've had other providers that have been like, yeah, 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 whatever, you know, they think that they're the experts, which, which is to me a very good signal of a time to find a new provider. Because if they're not open to having the conversations, I mean, I'm fine with them telling me I'm wrong. And here's why, or I, I I understand, but here's another piece of information you may not have or, or whatever. But Mm -hmm. if they're not willing to have the conversation, I feel it's time to move on and find a new provider who is because this is your body and your health. And it should be a collaborative experience to work together to find that help. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you, one of the things that I'm really interested in is helping people like make the link and even, you know, sometimes for myself between behavior at the surface and then underlying like things that don't serve us. And, and I think there's like obviously diet mentality, but then there's commonly, there is this sort of sense of not being taught how to advocate for oneself generally, not just in the medical settings, but like just assertiveness. You mentioned the term codependency, which is something that for whatever reason, I don't know why I, it's, I guess our, our opinions always shift and change over time, but I've been learning more about that in, in a number of ways and how it's very normalized to be codependent yeah. in a lot of scenarios. It's very normalized for women, especially to not be able to not be taught to be assertive um, and right. sort of take this, like, I can't, it, cause it is hard to find a provider right. and a lot of people sort of settle, but then 
for a provider who's like not too weight focused or not too weight biased, but this is just, I just want to highlight, it's like a perfect example of you saying, you know, I'm not going to, and not that there's anything wrong with like having that sort of victim reaction, because that's kind of how we're programmed to, because I've done that in many areas of my life. And it can be so empowering to be like, uh-uh, I'm so going gonna... mm-hmm. yeah. And that's, I guess, one of the, the things I would say to anybody who's dealing with this is, is while it can be very discouraging to be given no's or find roadblocks. And I'm sad that there are that many roadblocks because there are people that may not be strong enough or be so caught up in the pain of their addiction or be depressed or have whatever other issues going on. I mean, I was privileged. I had the, I was articulate. I was fairly intelligent. I was, I had resources. I had good insurance. I I had resources. Other people don't all. And, and I would rather that medical providers were helping people identify these things for themselves, not being kind enough to get out of the way when somebody's advocating for themselves. That's, that's the wrong way. That's not how it should be yeah. going. And yeah. I guess um, I will say that I'm very grateful for this internet age where mm-hmm. you can do your own research and find resources. And I'm really um, grateful for this day and age where we have things like podcasts like yours and um, books and documentaries and things where people that have had these experiences can talk about them And others can say, even if they don't find an answer, they can say, oh, there is something else out there because I think it's important that we do that. And I'm actually glad to see that there are providers now that are exploring these things and also some that are even carving out their own routes and doing their own practices. And I know it's not an easy thing to do to try to get around managed care. And Mm -hmm. um, I just hope that that can become more the norm. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. And um, providers, as you've kind of acknowledged, like they want, they may end up thanking you because they just want to help, but they often don't know how. And, but sometimes you don't, it doesn't feel like that when you're feeling shamed or hurt by a comment, but such a good, just like, I'm going to stop right here. I'm having a reaction. Like that is such, it's, yeah, it's great. It's part of where my, um, I have this defiant personality, which has not always been my best friend. I I always called her my inner brat teenager, but (laughs) at times it's good because when I'm told no, it's kind of the wrong thing to tell me because I'm going to be like, Mm -hmm. okay, well, I'm going to find my yes. It's not Mm going to be from you, but I'm going to find it somewhere. So I'm grateful for that in this, in this process, because it did help me find answers. Yes, Absolutely. So the, so the intuitive eating kind of came onto the scene. Was it in this program where the binge eating program, that was the first time it kind of came onto the scene and it was helpful. Although you were quite skeptical as almost, I was not intuitively eating yet. Let's put it that way. I think I still had a lot of mental health work to do, but I definitely had learned the concepts Mm -hmm. and I also met friends through the support group that have remained my friends that I could say, Hey, have you noticed this now? Or like, you would just suddenly realize something was a little different and, mm-hmm. um, and it laid the groundwork for it. And now I'm so grateful for it. I'm particularly grateful for it post-bariatric surgery because it's come in handy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point too. this idea of like just having continued time, being patient and having people you can talk to. Um, right so crucial. Well, and also, well. you know, in both therapy and intuitive eating, there's this talk about this gap, finding the gap between the impulse and the behavior to find that, that, that space to be able to make a decision, feel your feelings, have the thoughts. And my experience was in the beginning, it didn't exist because I'd gotten really good at using food. I mean, I remember them asking, 
do you eat when you're happy or sad? Or, and I said, if I have mild discomfort, I've gotten really good at it. It's been a long time. Mm -hmm. And so it took time to find that gap. And, and for a while, it would be a retrospective thing where after I'd binge, I'd go, what was that? What was going on back then? I don't know. Mm -hmm. And then it would be while it was happening, I maybe couldn't stop it. I couldn't interrupt it, but I could know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And then, then the gap started happening. And that gap is where the joy is. And um, the mm -hmm. further I've gotten along, the further the gap has become. And it's an amazing thing. It really is. But it took time and patience. And I do wish somebody had told me when I was first learning it, that it might take some time to find that gap. <laughs> yeah, that's such a good point. And yeah, and, and it's so common, right? Like, mm -hmm. there's, there's a reason why it was hard to build that gap, because you were just that was your safety mechanism. That was how this is how I regulate my body. This is how right. I feel a little bit safer in my body. And then, yeah, it can be well, very, also, very automatic. There's also decades of habits to change. And yeah, um, you know, you're, you're, you want to go, you have grooves formed after a long time that you have to try to break out of. And that's an ongoing thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I also, I will say I did, um, I don't know if this helps anyone, but I did, um, adopt meditation at some point in here and that mm -hmm. learning the non-judgmental observation skill has been fundamental for me learning to look at my, not as others behavior, but my own behavior or thoughts or feelings in a non-judgmental way and just go, huh, that's interesting. What was that about? Mm -hmm. it, it's so much easier than why did you do that? That was yeah. really dumb. You shouldn't have done that. It's a very different conversation you're having with yourself. It helps oh, with yeah. other people too, but it's helped me immensely with my own self talk. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you have a regular meditation practice? I do. Still, I, I do. Yep. Nice. How often do you meditate daily? Nice. Daily. Yep. Yeah. That non-judgmental awareness piece is crucial. I mean, that cru I wouldn't say crucial, but it's really helpful, especially when we're talking about this, these really painful experiences. Right. Well, and that finding that self-compassion, it was, it was kind of the basis for me to being able to kind of get into the self-compassion work. Um, yeah. Kristen Neff and Chris Gerber and such do it's, it's been very, very helpful. Yes. Excellent. So let's talk about your decision to pursue uh, weight loss surgery. So tell me a little bit about like how that decision came about for you. Sure. It was a very long process, I will say. And I'm going to start off by saying it's not something that I had to do. It's also not something I necessarily recommend that anybody do. It's a very, very personal decision. And mm -hmm. it is definitely not an, a quote unquote answer or solution to any problem. It is a tool. Uh, I just had gotten to the point. I, I have two sisters who both have had, had had bariatric surgery and I'd watched their progress and was a little envious of their um, success and realized immediately that just that envy was a sign that I was looking for a quick fix. And I was also looking to solutions that were more about my body size than they were to a relief to anything else. But when I got into my late forties and early fifties, I started having for a long time, I was strong and I was obese, but I, and I, I'm sorry if that word triggers anybody. I hope it doesn't, but I, I, I was, I was, I was obese and, but I was strong enough that, and I didn't have a lot of health problems probably because I, at least I think because I was not eating meat and I think it gave me some leeway. And so I could kind of pretend like it was all okay, but I started having some health problems. I started having high blood pressure. I started having joint discomfort. I started having 
I just noticed that my body size was, was physically limiting me doing some of the things I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And right about that time, first, my mother died very unexpectedly of a massive stroke. Um, and she had been overweight, but had been seeing a cardiologist and they just had never diagnosed, um, the problem she ended up having, but it was a real wake up call of, I always thought I was like her. And so I thought my dad had died very young too, but he had also been a smoker and had had diabetes that went and treated. So I could kind of discount that because I don't smoke. I'm okay. But I was a lot like my mom and I, I didn't want to die at 73 if I could prevent it. And then right after that happened, COVID hit and all of that early fear about obesity being a risk factor scared me. And it's unfortunate, but it's true. It's, it was part of my reality. And so I went to my doctor and I said, I really want to start exploring this after consulting with my therapist. I have a very good therapist that I found luckily. And I wanted to And real quick, you had been on this intuitive eating journey. Like you had been exposed to it for a while. Like what's the approximate timeline? Just like how long you've Um, been working on your probably 12 years, probably 12 years or 13 years. Yeah. And, and like I said, I knew this wasn't going to be a solution, but I also got to the point where I felt like a lot of the things that I wanted to do to improve my health were going to take so long that I just wanted some relief from that. Mm -hmm. And so I, but I also, again, knew it wasn't going to be the answer. I just thought it could Mm -hmm. be a tool in the toolbox. Mm -hmm. And so I started exploring the program. Um, I went into it very open-minded with, it wasn't, I'm going to have surgery. It was, I'm going to go have these conversations and see how they make me feel. And when I got into the program, I was very fortunate that the program here um, in Sacramento and with the Sutter system, if anybody's here, I highly recommend it. It was, um, they have a very well-rounded program. They took six months of pre-op working with registered dietitians, getting all of the tests, intuitive eating was incorporated as part of their training and has been as part of the post-op issues, which yeah. I thought was great. I mean, it yeah. really, I, actually, I shouldn't say intuitive eating. It was They called it mindful eating, but it was a lot of the intuitive okay. eating concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, um, yeah, it's a decision I don't regret doing by any means. I'm very grateful I did it because I, but I also went into it. Weight loss was not my goal, which a lot of the people, the medical professionals in the program didn't quite understand. Like they asked me, to set a goal weight. And I refused. I said, first of all, I wouldn't know what to set because I've been gaining weight since I was 14. I don't know what my quote unquote, normal, natural body weight should be as an adult. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. I'd have to guess based on my siblings or something, but I also, that's not my goal. My goal is to get off my medications, to get to the point where I can be active. And I have not lost all of the weight that I probably will or could but that doesn't matter because I've already achieved the goals I set out. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting, I think I shared this with you in our pre thing. Um, I still have some of that stuff in my head. Like I have an appointment coming up with my surgeon and I, I, ha- I remember this thought vividly flashing. I better get some weight, extra weight off in this next couple of weeks before that appointment so that I, my weigh in weight is good. And, and I just remember literally thinking, and this is where that gap comes in. Where did that come from? Because I genuinely don't care what he thinks about my weight loss, mm-hmm. I, 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 which is ironic for a weight loss surgeon, but I don't, I, that was not never my goal, but that voice is it still that 
I have to remember to give myself credit that our grace that our culture is so obsessed about weight and weight loss and um yeah that it's it's still in there it's still in there yeah yeah I, I loved the like the way even you wrote that you were like what where did that thought come from and it's like <laughs> And, and, but I think you brought that kind of, you, it was sort of evident in how you're talking about it now and how you wrote it, that there's like that humor to it for the most part, but still maybe right. some frustration a little bit. Like I've worked so oh. hard to not feel this way. And it's, it's, it's that like, Oh, come on. I like, I'm, I'm, I hit people. I'm, they can't hear me on a podcast, <laughs> see me on a podcast, but I'm hitting my hand. I get, I get yeah. My hand against my head. Like, come on, get out of there. I don't, but you know, it's just, it's just there. It's just what's left. The good news is mm-hmm. I'm not responding to it anymore. I'm able to see it and just kind of go, what? Where? I mean, I really was, it was more of, it was, it was a somewhat exacerbated what, but it really was genuinely almost a humorous one of, wow, that stuff really is deep seated. Mm-hmm. And it, it just, and, and that's okay. It's going to be, it's part of my journey yeah. and it's just yeah. going to be. Yeah, I think that like comes back to that mindset of curiosity and like, isn't it interesting? Like we have yeah. all of these thoughts, all like we have so many thoughts every day. So like, of course, especially given the world we live in, we're going to oh. have those types of thoughts and not getting so stuck in them and just being like, oh, hello, you showed right. up again and kind of. Well, and I have to say, I'm, I'm working in a surgery program, which because of insurance and it's in a medical system is all based on BMI, which. I know enough about the BMI to know that it's kind of a joke. Mm-hmm. And so I, I attach absolutely zero value about myself to it, but it was fascinating as I was losing weight in the early program to see the, like, now you're morbidly obese. Now you're just severely obese. Now you're obese. Now you're, and so, and I thought, and none of those mean anything to me, mm-hmm. but I would have to, I had no choice, but to confront that label that was being placed on me. And say, this label is something that is in there for insurance purposes, but I don't have to identify with it. And it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Because I don't identify with it. It's just, I'm just me in yes. this glorious body that's changing. But, you know, I'm 52. Yeah. It was changing anyway. There's this whole lovely menopausal stuff going on. So I'm just this chemical mix right now where <laughs> I wake up, I wake up every day and go, what's today going to be like, oh, okay. <laughs> What do we have on the right. docket right. <laughs> body? What do you have then, for me? Yeah. yeah. But then the reason that I know the reason that I started speaking with you to begin with even was that one of the things I did after my surgery and actually before my surgery was really started seeking out podcast books, influencers, things like that, that talked a lot about um, body neutrality, um, haze, you know, the healthy eating size, um, intuitive mm-hmm. eating, because I wanted to go into this program that I knew was going to trigger a lot of this stuff with reminding myself. And it was almost like surrounding myself with this community, even if it was a digital one of yeah. people that would support it. But what I found, unfortunately, and there is a lot of that, I should say, I found your podcast that way. I found some other really good ones that way. Um, I also, unfortunately, have also hit up against some people that in the pendulum swing of reacting to the diet mentality and medical professionals telling people they have to have surgery, um, that there is an anti-weight loss surgery bias that some have that left me feeling fairly judged. Now, I I, I don't take that on personally necessarily, 
but I've had to stop listening to a few because it just was too pervasive. It wasn't a single comment. It was part of their theme. Mm -hmm. And it made me sad because there are a lot of people out there that maybe have used this tool or may still decide to that you could be turning away from all of this other thing. And, you know, a person may be thinking about it and still choose not to, but you still don't want to sit in judgment of others. We're all just going through our own process and our own life and figuring this all out. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been an interesting journey between that and between actually trying to find medical care that supports this new, I feel like I'm kind of finding a middle path, which I guess that's where the meditation practice helps too, <laughs> of finding provide medical providers, mental health providers, and also other resources that will support me and taking a little bit from this side and a little bit from that and a little bit from this and a little mm-hmm. bit from that and finding what works for me and mm-hmm. not worrying about the rest that doesn't. And there's just not a lot out there for people that are absolutely embracing that everybody is beloved and beautiful and nobody should be forced to change their body to be acceptable to anyone and yet want to provide, get health support. And Mm -hmm. I totally want the health system to to disconnect body size and weight from health because they're correlative thing relationships at best, definitely not causal. Mm -hmm. And yet for some of us, if the way that your body size is extreme enough, it can provide for me, it was a relief to have some off, to be able to pursue my other goals. I'm not a better person. I'm just a slightly different person who can exercise better now Mm -hmm. (laughs) and is very happy to be able to go for a walk and not feel joint pain. And that's really was my goal. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like, I mean, what resources have you found that feel like they do kind of bridge that gap well, because I have not found many and maybe because you've looked hard. Yeah, there, there are, um, there are some, like I said, I think I'm finding there are podcasts that are good. Um, There are, I have found and through podcasts, I've actually found a couple providers. Like I recently found a prevention, a preventional cardiologist Mm -hmm. who was able to help me kind of really look like, okay, I'm looking for ways to preventatively and proactively make sure that my heart health is okay after these years and with this family history and kind of just maximize it to the best I can, where Mm -hmm. when I went, talk to my doctor in my traditional healthcare system about that, it was, I I was given tests to find out I didn't have acute problems now, but this new provider said, okay, that'll tell you if you have 70 or 80% blockage, that does, that just means you're not going to have a heart attack tomorrow. Likely, you know, that wasn't enough of an answer for me. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I also telehealth has been, and as horrible as the pandemic was for all of us, the acceptance and the growth of telehealth Mm -hmm. has been a godsend in this area for me, because I was able to find a therapist who I've never met in person, but have been seeing for three years almost. And has been a wonderful fit. I found, um, again, good podcasts, good books, things like that. And a lot of it's Mm -hmm. just trying things out. And if it doesn't ring true to me, I reject it and move on to the next one. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Just being willing to like try something and trusting yourself that like, you know, it'll, it might be disappointing if there is, cause that's definitely what I have found is that although when you talk to individual providers, I think there's more of 
acceptance of like the middle ground mm-hmm. even then I think there's actually misconceptions and I think it's all very normal because right. we it's just I don't know that's the way our brains work and like polarization right. and extremes and we find sort of this group where we're like like health at every size like this right. this makes sense and I love it and I don't love how weight loss surgery is discussed right. in most settings in right. that community well and to add to it being a vegetarian who would love to become vegan eventually. I'm also in this bariatric program that emphasizes protein, 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 protein to the Mm -hmm. point that people are keto freaks in it. And that's not going to work for me. But I also know there's this short term, my short term recovery period where there were things I needed to do to maintain my health and not lose muscle mass and not lose all of my hair and things like that, that felt very, they kind of went contrary to some of the intuitive eating principles that have helped me so much. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, I had to track my food and water intake very heavily, which is something that's not really encouraged in intuitive eating. Right. And so I have had to kind of do some mental shifting of this is a short term thing to deal with this particular surgery recovery. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, this is what works for me. And I was so grateful I'd been through the process beforehand so that I could kind of do that because it is a mind trip. It really is a mind trip to kind of go, oh, wow. I'm ca-. It's like that catching myself worrying about my weight at the doctor's way in. Yeah. I, I don't really care, but it's still in there. And so it's learning to kind of identify the triggers as what they are mm-hmm. and being able to put them in their proper place and go, okay, yeah, yes, but here's my truth. Yeah, I hear you. But that here's my truth. And just kind of keep coming back to it. And I'm still learning it. It's still, it's still a, a, you know, a lesson Mm -hmm. in progress for sure. Yeah. And like, that's such a, I mean, just this idea of like, we're all learning all the time. So of course you're still learning and like, I hope to be until the day I take my last breath, frankly. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's like really building up that you said, I think you had said maybe in your writing, like you did not regret this the decision to wait. Cause you had said like, a, and I've heard that a lot right. too, that people wish right. their only regret about surgery is they'd wish they'd done it sooner. Yeah. And for you, you're like that ah. didn't, I'm glad I trusted nope. myself and you, yep. it sounds I'm like, so yeah, great. I'm so grateful. I didn't, I mean, there's a part of me that wishes I'd been able to enjoy more physical things in my thirties and forties than I was able to because of my body size at the time. But Mm -hmm. I would not have been mentally prepared for this. I would not have been emotionally prepared for this. And Mm -hmm. I instinctively knew beforehand that I had to figure out why I was using that my relationship with food needed to be healed to an extent where I wouldn't just have the surgery and then regain all the weight and then be probably have nutrient deficiencies on top of, of everything else. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I just intuitively knew it wasn't right for me. And I, I mean, I once even, I kind of had forgotten about this until recently, there was a time after my first sister had her surgery, where I actually went to an informational seminar for a surgery program. Mm -hmm. And luckily it was back when they were still doing lap band surgeries. And the doctor was talking about crazy people who would come in and go, I'm going to go on a cruise. Can you loosen the band up for me? And (laughs) I remember at the time just thinking, oh, I'm so glad the stories I heard here were so ridiculous because it allowed me to go, this is not for me. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Right. But, but I understand the temptation. I understand mm-hmm. people who have been struggling for with whatever food or body issues their lives. I, I understand it. And we live in a society that is so freaking focused on it that they just, 
I understand it. I really do. And, and mm-hmm. so I have a lot of sympathy and compassion for people and would never judge anyone. And I would never recommend to anybody that they have bariatric surgery. I would never, unless it's what's right for them. Mm-hmm. And I might, if they asked, give them some suggestions about things to think about first or to question mm-hmm. or, and things to look for in terms of like a really well-rounded program. And I remember my program had a minimum six month pre-op period where you did all these things. And I remember people, including my sister saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're making you wait that long. I'd go find a different program. And I'm like, and it was a little disappointing to hear, particularly in that COVID fear phase, but I'm so grateful for it in retrospect. I am mm-hmm. so grateful. Mm-hmm. So, because it gave me a chance to learn new habits and prepare myself emotionally and physically and, yeah. um, and to know it was going to be a safe thing to do and to make sure I had aftercare lined up. Yep. Yep. It was really important. Yeah. And prior to then you had been working on this, but it, it seems like you really worked a lot on just like building up self-trust in general, not just, mm-hmm. I mean, related to your body signals, but self-trust yeah. so that you could sort of pick and choose and, and figure out your path because yeah. it's, it's interesting. That's something you and I somewhat have in common to just my professional experience in preventive cardiology and mm-hmm. weight loss surgery. It's just like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, it's hard to kind of find that um, that where, where I belong. And that, yeah, like mm-hmm. actually you're, uh, I always quote Brene Brown. It's like this idea of like belonging to yourself and yes. first and foremost, and yes, you found also some really great providers mm-hmm. and, and people in your life, but, um, it's kind of, well, and it's, that. and it's easy to be discouraged when you look at the traditional medical system that that doesn't exist because you can go in there and some of the things you hear or the things you see are just feel a little crazy. And it takes, I guess I would say to people, don't, don't give up, keep looking because there are people out there and you may have to fight to figure out a way to get your insurance to cover it. Again, don't take no for an answer. Yeah. Work really hard to do your homework and make your case for it. Um, and I'll say, you know, I'm now eight months post-op and I'm at that point where that quote unquote honeymoon phase where weight just drops off easily without you even thinking about it is done. And so I'm, I'm now so grateful for all those other skills that I had learned beforehand, because now I know I have my, my intuitive eating skills. I have my body acceptance. I'm not fretting about where the weight is going or whatever. And, and it's been interesting because early on, a lot of the social networks that have formed to help bariatric patients speak to each other were really helpful and supportive. And now I'm finding myself easing away from them a little bit because they're very much into the, oh my gosh, my weight loss is slowed. What am I going to do? And I'm like, oh, okay, I can't, that's not yeah. healthy for me. I can't, I can't right. go there, you know? Yeah. It's, it's a hard thing to do what you're doing. And that's, it's, I kind of recommend this to people. And I know it's a hard thing to do, which is like, just, you know, listen to your body, kind of similar things that you were doing before surgery. Mm-hmm. And you just don't have that much control over where the weight goes. Right. Like, no, I Especially mean, not at 52. I'm sorry. I'm fighting against, you know, menopausal weight gain too. So I'm like, it just is going to be, the weight is going to be what it's going to be, but the yeah. health can be where I can have some action. And I, I hit a point where my mantras became energy and strength because mm-hmm. immediately post-op, you don't have a lot of energy because you're really on this very restrictive diet that is yeah. n- not healthy 
if it weren't for such a short period. And then I wanted to get strong. I wanted my body to be able to help me do what I wanted to do instead of becoming a hindrance to the things I wanted to do in life, which it kind of mm-hmm. had become. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that part's been great. And as the restriction becomes less of an issue, I had to go back to the intuitive eating principles again. And I found myself eating some foods that probably weren't ideal for a person who's had bariatric surgery. And I'd think, what's that about? And I go, oh, you've been restricting from a long time. You were suddenly identifying foods as quote, bad foods. Mm-hmm. You know why this is a trigger for you. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's deal with that and go back to what you know to do to avoid that. And let's but instead build up healthy foods that add in, that give you that energy and strength that you're wanting. And, yeah. and so again, it's completely separate from the weight loss, which is like I said, ironic when they call it weight loss surgery. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. We, exactly. I want to call it health finding surgery or something. I don't know. Like <laughs> I, I love said, that. It's not health something that it, that will work for everyone. I just hit mm-hmm. a point where my binge eating had been so extreme for so long that this was a tool to help, but again, not the solution. It was a tool. Absolutely. And, and that's the thing about autonomy and granting autonomy is like, no one can know if anything's right for anyone else. And yet I think we all kind of have all these notions about like what is right and, and what's the right choice for other people in a variety of settings. And that's what our brains do. They just like evaluate and judge, but no one can ever, like, I can never know who is right for surgery, who is not. What's right for somebody like this wouldn't have been the right decision for me five years ago. It, It is now. I think. Um, and that's part of it too, is realizing that it's a journey. It's not, um, it's not a destination, I guess there's a cliche for you. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. I love it. Um, well, I feel like we could talk all day, but we'll switch gears and do our motivation questions for the end. Um, so what is one thing you have truly intrinsic motivation for learning, definitely learning, Mm -hmm. reading podcasts, books. I, I love learning. And it came from when I was a child, and it, it continues to today and it's helped me a lot in this journey. It really has. Yeah. I love that. Again, growth mindsets mm-hmm. and just always learning. It's a great curiosity. It's all, all good mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. Um, our next question is from should to a choose to, which is our integrated motivation question. What behavior is something that was always a should for you that maybe you struggled to do, um, but you figured out a way to do it more consistently, either because you value it, it's consistent with your identity even if you don't always love it. Um, Like I I think I said to you in the um, pre-interview, I am (laughs) afraid to say this because I'm going to jinx myself, but it's movement or quote unquote exercise. I kind of don't like calling it exercise, but I, for the long time, I loved it when I was a kid. It was intrinsic then. It was just movement. It was fun. It was joy. And then it became something I was quote unquote supposed to do to lose weight. And so I avoided it for a long time. And then it became something that was difficult or nearly impossible to do because of physical restrictions. Now it's something that's giving me energy and strength and joy. And that I've kind of gotten to the stage of establishing it as a habit. And I, to the point that I remember the first day I couldn't do it and I missed it. It was another one of those, where did that come from? moments. Um, It was, it was really a cool thing. So I'm hoping Mm -hmm. to continue that process. I really do because, because I, 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 um, it's the best way I can be strong and do the things I'd like to do. And I don't want to go back to being sedentary because it's so hard to get the momentum going once you haven't been for a long time. So I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah like I said, no, but I'm going to knock on some wood right now just because I feel like I'm jinxing myself a little bit. It's new. <laughs> well, yeah, but I, I love you sharing that because a, you're just able to reflect on like 
those those the reasons you want to do it are are very internal and yeah like there's a lot of factors that make it external motivation based on you know decoupling it from weight loss but then it was also just like that it sounds like just being able to like feel good and find some things that that feel good in your body doing it and I'm trying to find some fun things to do now to remember that when it was intrinsic and when it was just Mm -hmm. it was having fun and my body happened to be involved. <laughs> and yes. I'm trying to get back yes. to that now. Like do some dance classes, get on my little mini trampoline, you know, and just see what seems fun. And if it doesn't work, then try something else and see if that seems fun. Yeah. Yeah. That experiment mo- mentality is so helpful. And like, it is so normal to have periods of time where exercise waxes and wanes and it shifts and changes. And, and, and yet we're not very good at normalizing that. Right. We, we judge that and we're like, that's bad, but really having that flexible, attitude of like, I'll figure it out. And, right. and yeah, there's going to be some times that's, when that's I a good theme for my life these days, I'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I, I think about this lately. So I'll share it like this idea of someone had shared this with me and it stuck with me, this idea of if we knew like the end chapter of our life, we just kind of knew it worked out like quote unquote, whatever that is. And we're, you know, we've written X amount of chapters so far, however long, and we have these unwritten chapters between now and the end and like what if we just like knew it worked out because so many times our fears are not it's not going to work out I'm going to mess up or I'm going to screw something up or something bad's going to happen to me or whatever and well I love that because it's like reading a good book where you're curious and excited to see what's coming like oh I didn't see that coming that's a cool new twist I I kind of like approaching life like that I've been, I've been, it was, it was shared with me related to parenting, but I was like, this has a lot of parallels to like how I think about my building a business. And like, cause sometimes I'm like, what's that going to look, but then just like, yeah, like you're like, let's just see how fun versus like, it's going to be bad. Nope. I already know it's going to work out. I just don't know how, (laughs) and it's simply just, yeah. So, um, So, yeah. And then uh, let's see, last question. A main part of our mission here is to teach people to reclaim trust with their bodies so they can live more courageous and connected lives. Can you share an example of living courageously or building connection that you're proud of? I think that um, I, and I honestly don't even remember now what I said in the interview, but I am, I think finding that ability in myself to trust my own judgment and to trust my instincts in this journey is such has been so key. It's been so key to just trust that that voice in my head means something. And I may not understand what it is at the time, but let's just listen to it and trust it. Look for some evidence to see and make sure it's true-ish, at least for me and, and trust it, be okay Mm -hmm. with it. Um, And, and it has gotten me a long way. It really has. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. And it's this idea of intuitive eating to me is so much more than eating and hungerfulness. It's like, it, it's learning to trust our intuition and, uh, it's a hard and trust thing. Our body, our body yeah. will tell us my body's yeah. doing it now. My body now tells me I can, I can hear it. I had shut off connection to it for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can come back. If you give it time, you can, mm-hmm. You can reestablish a relationship with your body. And I spend a lot of times these days feeling like somebody who had this, um, wasn't always kind to my body, but now I'm being extra kind to seek a little forgiveness and to help her trust that I will support her in getting to help if she'll support me and doing the things I want to do. 
And mm-hmm. that just sounded a little disjointed, but it's kind of how I'm approaching it right now is just yeah. finding that relationship to help, to help take care. And our bodies will do amazing things if we give it an opportunity. We, they really will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. That's, it's so, so crucial. And that's sometimes I've gotten the question, like, what does it mean relationship to food or relationship to my body? And it's like, you, you do, you just, it's how you talk to it and you work together as a team versus against so often we're taught to like work against not on well, the same I, team. I'm the kind of person that had a very difficult time thinking about it as like, I remember being encouraged to role play and pretend like it's a friend or something. Mm-hmm. And that was that suspension of reality was challenging for me. Mm-hmm. And now I find myself doing it on the regular. So I guess it just became like everything became helpful when it was time for it to be helpful. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes. Yeah. I've, I'm a sort of skeptic at heart. So I'll be like, I'm not going to do that. And then down the road, you're like, yeah, that's really probably a helpful exercise (laughs) for lots of different things. So, well, thank you so much, Amy. This has been um, really fun learning more about you and your story. And I know so many people are having me on. I appreciate the opportunity to share and I hope it helps someone. And I know it definitely helped me. So thank you for that. Just the process helped me great deal. I'm keep really up the glad good to work. hear that. Oh, thank you so Congratulations much. Congratulations on your little path you found. <laughs> thank you. It's, it's fun. It's been, it's more and more fun. The more I can just relax and know the story chapters at the end, it's, it's going to be great. <laughs> right. Well, well thank you that. so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening today and for showing up for yourself. If you are ready to ditch the diet mentality, build sustainable, healthy habits, take great care of your body, and build a life you truly love, then I have some great news for you. The doors for the Body Respect Program are now open for enrollment. This innovative program is unlike anything else out there. It will help you unlearn diet mentality BS, learn to truly work with your body instead of against it, and help you show up as the person you were meant to be. If you're ready to dive deeper and get the support you truly deserve, go to drhondorp.com forward slash course or click on the link in the show notes to sign up and get more information about the program, current bonus offerings, and to join the community today. That's drhondorp.com forward slash course. It's time to stop dieting and start living. Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, It would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.